Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. It's been a phenomenal 48 hours in financial markets. We've seen total shenanigans in the United Kingdom. The Bank of England making some very contradictory comments about its stance on the market. We're seeing serious volatility there. I think we'll have a long discussion on that. Yesterday, the International Monetary Fund came out with its latest economic prognostication for the global economy, a pretty downbeat assessment of prospects for the remainder of this year into next year, and a specific comment from the IMF saying that things could get very, very dirty and much worse over the next six months. A lot to talk about there. And then on financial markets, and I know it's all related to the IMF, it's all related to, particularly related to what's going on in the United Kingdom, but we're seeing bond yields everywhere rising. A lot of that is to do with the mess that the UK authorities are making of things at the moment. We have an ongoing story of dollar strength, which will obviously create serious problems for emerging market countries with U.S. debt. And if you combine the strength of the dollar with rising interest rates, you can see the potential there for an emerging market debt crisis, something we haven't spoken about, I think, in quite some time. The dollar, of course, is strengthening significantly against all currencies, the yen, the euro and sterling. So it's a pretty mad story out there. I was Bemused yesterday, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, initially came out um, saying that the guilt buying program would end this Friday after another significant bout of it on Tuesday. And a, a little time later, the Financial Times reported that Bank of England officials had been briefing that they would keep this policy going. And then the Bank of England, sometime later, came out another statement saying that it would end on 
Friday and that pension funds and so on needed to uh, get their positions in order over the next few days. So there's a sense of confusion. There is a sense that the lunatics have taken over the asylum. One can only look across at the United Kingdom with a certain level of alarm at the moment. And the reason why I say alarm rather than amusement is because Everything that is happening in the UK at the moment is reverberating through the rest of the world. And if you look at what's happening, long-term interest rates in the United States and here, uh, they're under upward pressure. A lot of it to do what's going on in the UK financial system. Um, So as, as we've often discussed, Chris, all of these things are heavily interconnected. We're seeing that again. So I guess I would just caution that lest we laugh or scoff at the mess the UK is in at the moment. We should just remember that it will have implications for ourselves. How do you interpret as somebody who's living over there? I think you put it very well there, Jim. Your conclusion there about how everything is connected to everything else is, is as you say, a favourite theme of this podcast. And the list of things that you mentioned, uh, that's well said, Jim, but there's there's other things going on as well. The list is actually a very long one, and we could spend a long time going through it. There are two forces at work in global financial markets at the moment, um, two main ones. One is the central bank response everywhere to inflation. And as you say, the second one is the complete nut job that's being made of policy in the UK. It starts with politics and then it runs through the bond and money markets. Now, this is always very complicated and people's eyes glaze over and people don't really understand. If And I, can, and I include myself in that, uh, technicalities of what's going on. So I, I don't think they should occupy us for too long, but we've, we've got to spend a little bit of time unpicking some of the different bits and pieces. It starts with the new prime minister, Liz Truss. There was a great article in the FT earlier this week by a journalist called Sarah O'Connor, who was saying that that one of the problems facing this trust is that she has this policy called economic growth, which I don't think there's ever been a a politician in the history of mankind that hasn't had policy of economic growth. So the first thing about it is that it's nothing new. But Sarah O'Connor made some very interesting points that people like us should remember, um, actually, saying, first of all, when when you actually go out and ask people what do they understand by economic growth? Do they know what GDP is? Most ordinary people, for very good reasons, you know, they've all got lives to lead. They've got no idea, really, what GDP or growth in GDP actually is. So as a political slogan, it amounts to Liz Truss standing outside the Houses of Commons shouting, growth, what do we want? Growth, when do we want it? Sustainably, over the medium term. It really isn't that catchy, is it? It really doesn't grab the political imagination. The second thing about the growth policy that she has espoused, which is not original, as we say, is that everything that she's doing will not achieve it. It will not achieve that sustainable growth thing. You mentioned the IMF report. One of my bugbears is always the way in which economics is reported in the media. And I was watching the the flagship BBC News programme last night in which it was parroted that the um, Kwasi Kwarteng's budget would boost growth in the way that he said it would. And everybody was kind of sort of saying, oh, that's interesting. um, The Chancellor was right. No, he wasn't. The IMF, who the Newsnight reporter said seemed to support Kwasi Kwarteng's forecasts, what they were saying is that the, the British economy 
would see a burst of growth that would very quickly be dissipated in inflation. And if you wanted to move away from economic jargon, you would say that Kwasi Kwarteng's budget just gave the UK economy a sugar high. So we, we've, got, we've got that to deal with as well. If we go into those technical areas of the money and bond markets that have been really, really frighteningly bad this week, if this was going on um, in other countries, I think that we would have seen global financial crisis type headlines. But luckily, we're not there yet. It's a particular corner of the money and bond markets that we've spoken about on this podcast, and it's the pension industry. It's esoteric. It's not very interesting. It's quite boring, actually. Um, But it's big. It's possibly around one and a half trillion pounds sterling. One and a half of a lot of money. Twelve zeros, I think it is, a trillion. One followed by twelve zeros. It's a particular story that deserves a, a book written about it. I always remember the last great financial crisis, which we sort of hoped would be the, the last one that any of us would live through. When they wrote books and made movies of it, they found it very difficult, A, to explain it in terms that people who have ordinary lives could understand, and B, to make it interesting. And I remember during the movie, The Great Short, collateralized debt obligations, a particular form of a mortgage-based derivative, to use the jargon, was explained by a blonde bombshell sitting in a bubble bath. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that. I certainly do. In order to try and make it interesting, and it's it's tough for for, for people like us to to get this get stuff across in a meaningful way. Well, but, Chris, in, in that context, I would recommend Gillian Ted's book "Fool's Gold" at the yeah, time. Yeah, she's a managing was, editor of the FT. She's yeah, brilliant, which yeah. was one of the better explanations for what happened at that stage. An anthropologist by training, actually, mm. Gillian Ted, um, very very smart one. We've got this corner of the UK financial system called liability-driven inv- investing, which is, as I say, to do with pension funds, and it looks like they have been doing something very dodgy, or at least some of them have been doing very dodgy. And I actually made a mistake when I was describing this in one of our most recent podcasts, and I said it was a liquidity crisis rather than a solvency crisis. What I said was true for pensions but wasn't true for part of the pension fund industry, which are the LDI funds, which clearly are in danger of becoming insolvent. And that is serious for any any company that has these funds as part of its pension planning. But it's a real, real problem. And it is a problem for the pensions industry, for people that rely on this industry to pay their pensions going forward, for the companies that were hoping never having to uh, put more money into these pension funds again, which is why these things were created. It looks inappropriately in the first place. But it's going to be the spillovers. It's going to be where this crops up in other parts of the money and bond markets. And that could be anywhere. That could be in the interbank market, the way banks fund themselves. It could be in the non-bank market. It could be in a combination of both. Or if the Bank of England gets it right, it'll all be okay. But right now, the consequences of all of this are that the UK has higher interest rates from overnight out to 30 years, big time. And that means many different things. It means higher costs for businesses. It means higher costs for, you know, financing anything, car purchase, credit cards, whatever. But perhaps most importantly, mortgage rates are going to go up a lot over the course of the next while. I think that it's time to talk about a really, really serious problem going to be building from this for the UK housing market because of Uh, higher mortgage rates. So there are lots of different implications, lots of different ways this could go. There's lots of things that the Bank of England, as you rightly say, are doing the sending confusing signals out to the market. that has got a lot of people, A, very confused, B, very worried. It's much smarter people than I who really understand 
the minutiae of all of this are expressing confusion today. The overall uh, overarching political conclusion that I would draw from this is that the Tory party seems hell-bent on either getting Liz Truss to fire the Chancellor of the Exchequer for starting all of this in the first place with his so-called mini-budget, and that she has to fire him if she is to stand any chance of surviving this. And the other half of the Conservative Party in the UK thinks that she's toast. And there is an excoriating article on The Economist's website today, which describes Liz Truss, and I urge anybody to go and have a look at it, as having the shelf life of a lettuce. A lot of people are writing her off already, which which is truly extraordinary. I think that there's a very good chance that if she does go, and I totally accept that it is an if, we could have a general election before Christmas here in the UK, which would be quite a turn up for the books, wouldn't it, Jim? It certainly would. If you think back to this time last year, looking at the UK opinion polls, there was a consensus view that Boris Johnson was well set up for another term in government after the next election. Um, he's gone. He's toast, um, at least for the moment. Um, Liz Truss has taken over and um, it's it's gone from bad to worse. So, yeah, I mean, there's... It's, it, you'd have to think that it's a crisis like this and bungling economic management like this that actually should bring a government down. I think a general election actually could be a very good thing um, in a sense that uh, it could force some change in direction. I'm curious, Chris, about the Bank of England's role in all of this. I guess the theory of proper central banking is that central banks should be independent of the political process. And one of the most positive changes, I think, that was made to UK economic policy over recent decades was the decision by Tony Blair back in 1997 to give operational independence to the Bank of England. So in other words, the UK, um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer would set an inflation target for the Bank of England and it would then be up to the Bank of England to deliver that inflation target. So that operational independence for the Bank of England, I think, succeeded in smoothing out the historically very volatile and notoriously very volatile UK economic cycle, which, of course, had a hugely volatile impact on sterling as well. And for Ireland, that was a huge, huge problem because our biggest trading partner and our most important currency relationship was incredibly volatile, largely because of the political motivation of the Bank of England with the boom-bust cycle that was car- that characterised the UK Operational independence given by Blair and his Chancellor Gordon Brown at the time. And then until the great financial crash, we got a pretty stable currency. We got a very stable economic cycle. The boom bust appeared to have gone away. And then, of course, we got the the great financial crisis, the global financial crisis and a few years of extreme volatility again. Um, We're coming out of that. And then we got covid well, sorry, first we got Brexit, then we got COVID, and now we have the Ukraine situation. And of course, overlaying on all of that is the political mess that is the UK. And in fact, I probably spoke to you before about this, but I remember back in July 2016, about a month after the Brexit referendum, I was asked to speak at a lunch in Chelsea about Brexit. And I stood up and said, and I've never felt as confident about anything in all my all of my life that this Brexit is a total mistake, that it makes no sense whatsoever. There's no, it's not, there's no gray areas here. I just thought 
Brexit was a nuts idea, but I was absolutely eaten. I had guys standing up roaring at me. And I guess the other thing, apart from that very vitriolic response, um, the other thing was that the room was sort of divided split down the middle in a pretty dramatic way. And I, and I just feel that everything that's going on at the moment really does go back to the political shenanigans that gave rise to Brexit. So I think this is just a non-going political mess. It's a yeah, I, th- I, don't think, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Brexit has broken Britain. Yes, I, 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 yeah. The country feels broken to me politically and increasingly economically. Because one of the reasons why Liz Truss has her growth, growth, growth agenda is that she quite rightly has has identified the fact that Britain hasn't grown now for well more than a decade. And that, you know, we we, we have Italian style growth rates, i.e. we don't have them. Uh, We also have, though, Italian style politics by the looks of things now, very, very unstable. Um, You know, we're now talking about replacing Liz Truss within a few weeks of her taking office. Um, with the fifth prime minister of, of recent years, since 2016, um, which is, in, you know, Italian-style political instability. And we're talking about Britain here. Chris, dare I say it, I said to you on this podcast a few times, um, you clearly had a serious problem with Boris. And I argued consistently that I felt Liz Truss would be a much worse option than Boris. I, I think Boris looks positively um, stable at this juncture relative to Liz Truss. Defend yourself. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, up to a point, Lord Copper. Um, the, <laughs> Johnson does look better than Trust. That's an amazing achievement. And it was said at the time uh, before she was elected that Johnson was going to back her because he knew exactly what she would do that in Dominic Cummings' words, she was completely crackers. Um, And it's hard to disagree, I think, on the basis of what we've seen so far. Uh, But I don't think that gets Johnson off the hook, and I don't think it gets your fondness for Johnson off the hook. Uh, No, 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 sorry, it's all relative, Chris, come on. Yes, this is Um, a relative call. In in absolute terms, let me me, me just be absolutely clear about what I'm saying. In, in, In relative terms, Johnson was better than trust, but that Thank doesn't you. mean that he, Johnson, was, a, was and is a monster. But in terms of policy, the reason why he didn't, you know, Brexit itself was the damage, and he is responsible for that. But after that, he's done nothing. I mean, the, the point of, of everything that's happened to the UK in the last six years is that nothing has happened apart from Brexit. Pretty big deal in, in and of itself. 
So Johnson's tenure as prime minister in particular was characterized by nothing much other than him bumbling around the place and not locking down the economy um, soon enough during during COVID. Uh, he didn't, you know, do very much. And but she's doing a lot. So th- she's an example of, of economic policy, for good or ill, is very consequential. And we're already seeing just how consequential, appallingly bad economic policies actually are. The, the, the financial stability of the UK is being called into question. You mentioned the central bank, Bank of England and its independence and the great decision to give it independence all the way back in 1997. One of the things that goes unremarked upon in any country is when we have good institutional governance of our economies, of our political systems, of our corporate lives and of our political lives. And it, it, it's, it's, it's only when it doesn't work that you begin to notice it and we take it for granted at our risk. Like so many things in life, the good things we take for granted sometimes come back to bite us. Because the other big responsibility, it's not just inflation that the Bank of England has, is financial stability. The financial system requires all sorts of structures, all sorts of governance processes, all sorts of rules and regulations for it to work. And if it doesn't work, the financial system collapses and there goes the economy as well. We take it for granted because we've had risks, we've had problems, we've had crises. But by and large, it works because organizations like the Bank of England typically do their job. The problem is, is when the government does things that doesn't allow the Bank of England to do its job, which is what I think what's going is been going on here with the fiscal side of things, quasi Guateng and Liz Truss blowing things up over in the Treasury, means the Bank of England's job almost becomes impossible to guarantee financial stability. They're doing their best. But, you know, it's a very big ask what they're being asked to do at the moment. Chris, can I just ask you, the, you know, the, the role of a central bank is, and let's be specific about the Bank of England, it's primarily to um, hit an inflation target. It is to preserve the integrity of the currency. But another role of a central bank is to act as a lender of last resort. And in a sense, that's what the Bank of England has been doing since the mini budget. It's been acting as a lender of last resort in a sense that it has stepped in and it has basically bailed out the financial system. Um, and, and why did it, has it appeared in the last 24 hours that Andrew Bailey, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, is abdicating on that responsibility? Because, uh, well, maybe I'm being a bit simplistic, but it strikes me that this Bank of England support for the gilt market and indirectly or maybe directly for the pensions market in the UK is very much the Bank of England acting as a lender of last resort, is preserving the stability of the financial system. Why would the bank suggest that actually this has to end on Friday? Because Mario Draghi famously said, I think in 2011, that the ECB stood ready to do whatever it takes and that backstop actually saved the eurozone from extinction at the time, in my view. Um, why would Andrew Bailey say what he said yesterday? I mean, is he? Do you think? And I, I was about to ask this question earlier, and I just waffled on and went off in loads of different directions. But is the credibility of the Bank of England seriously undermined at this juncture? I think the answer to that question is definitely yes, in that the pointing in different directions only yesterday, saying on the one hand that financial stability is seriously under threat and then saying that they're not going to act as lender of last resort um, after Friday, uh, I think confused a hell of a lot of people, um, people who are much more 
as I say, au fait with the deep technicalities of all of this. The Bank of England's response to your criticism will be that it is prepared to act as a lender of last resort next week after Friday, but via a different method to the one that they're closing on Friday. As I said, this gets very, very technical. But I think the point you're making is that for central bankers in particular, loose talk costs lives. That old cliche. And Mario Draghi did save the euro. It would have gone under, in my opinion, if he hadn't said what he'd said and, and obviously been prepared to back it up. So that's why central bankers pay an awful lot of attention to what they say. They they really are very careful. And it strikes me that Bailey was very loose yesterday. All the people that I speak to and read and follow in the various ways that one can, who've been trying to interpret his remarks, trying to answer your question, actually, Jim, I've gotten very, I'm getting some very different answers. And a lot of people saying they're very confused. But there is an, as a result of all of that, they're saying that because the clarity of purpose, of mission, of statement have, has gone, credibility is damaged. It really has become much more, even more serious than, than we previously realised. Amazing stuff. Um, and it's clearly a story that will run and run, unfortunately, with all sorts of implications. Can I just say one thing in order to answer your question directly about what I think was going on is that I think that the pension funds... This is an example of how technical it gets, have been asked by the Bank of England to sell their holdings of government bonds, gilt, back to the Bank of England. And they've been offering those bonds back to the Bank of England at too high a price. The Bank of England is willing to act as a lender of last resort. Not at that price. But not at that price. And so I think the bank I think what Bailey was trying to do is say, listen, we'll buy this stuff off you, but not at the price that you want. And so it's good old fashioned market trading, if you like, but it really shouldn't be done in public because it confuses the hell out of people. If that is the explanation, as I say, that's all I've got. Another event earlier this week that I think is resonating again at the moment, unfortunately, uh, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, and two other economists whose names escape me. Diamond and Dipvig. That's right. Uh, They they got the Nobel Prize for economics um, due to research they did on banking crises and what caused the banking crisis. crisis. And what I I felt was really interesting about what they won the Nobel Prize for is that it's, it's trying to explain why banking crises happen and why you get runs on banks. And it's basically... Uh, this is simplifying it, but it's it's basically because people, depositors, lose faith, lose confidence in a bank and they withdraw their funds. Yeah. That um, may sound very simplistic, but uh, I, I, I personally think it's fantastic to see a Nobel laureate being granted on the basis of research like this rather than on some esoteric financial modeling that, doesn't mean anything to anybody. I think if people read the summary, the non-technical summary of what Bernanke and his two colleagues were writing about, you can get it. It seems, I think, very straightforward and, you know, quite obvious. But I think the really important part about this is that Bernanke actually got it and he knew what to do when the great financial crisis was unfolding. Um, He recognised what the role of the Federal Reserve was in that sort of crisis. Well, absolutely. And one of the things that uh, you have with Ben Bernanke is that you have somebody that who has studied economic history, but is also a bloody 
fantastic contemporary technical economist up to date with everything that macroeconomics has to offer. And that was one of the criticisms that was made of the economics profession at the time of the last financial crisis is that all these fantastic technical mathematical economists had never studied any economic history. But Ben Bernanke had. He made a big study of the Great Depression, for instance. And so he, he knew his economics and he knew his economic history and brought all of that to bear. Olivier Blanchard and others have made the point that essentially Bernanke saved the world. I mean, it isn't an exaggeration to say that, you know, lives were saved as a result of what he did and that we would have rerun the 1930s if he hadn't done what he had done. So, yes, it is absolutely um, a great thing that somebody has awarded a Nobel Prize for a practical expression of economics rather than what is more normally awarded in economics is, is are prizes for method rather than outcomes. But anyway, if you want to, to if you want really simple explanations of, of what bank runs are all about go and watch either mary poppins or it's a wonderful life two, a wonderful movie, life. two movies where, well actually in, in it's a wonderful life it's not a bank run it's a savings and loan but you might remember that savings and loan have had their own problems back in the back in the 1980s they've had indeed but it was it was fascinating that um bernanke actually took on milton friedman and friedman's view of the world was that the great depression was caused by um, a money supply shock it was bank failures bank failures absolutely yeah and the, the, the diamond and dig thing their, their great innovation was to mathematize all of this and put it down in in a, in a formal very simple model actually but of course what flowed from all of this was deposit insurance and and that's the thing that has really saved the financial system multiple times over so yeah you're you're absolutely right so 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 chris do you do you think the um irish government's decision to guarantee the deposit of the Irish banking system is part of the Bernanke playbook? Yes and no. I, I've no idea what Ben Bernanke thought of the Irish banking guarantee, and I know it still has um, attracts great controversy it to does. the present day. I think that what I think that what Ben Bernanke would would argue is that, um, or at least this is what Chris Johns would argue, that is that you do backstop, guarantee, do whatever to make sure that your your systemically important banks don't go under, and that must start with regulation beforehand and bailing them out afterwards if your regulation doesn't work. But for systemically unimportant institutions, you do not bail them; you let them go under. And obviously, that's a judgment call, and different people will reach different judgments. But I believed at the time, and I still do, that Anglo-Irish and nationwide were not systemically important and should not have been bailed out. But that's my own mm, personal yeah. view. So where do you think it's all going to head? Do you think that we are heading into a, a, another great financial crisis or do you, or what? I mean, what do you think, Jim? No, no I, I don't actually. I was asked this question directly this morning at a conference. Somebody was quoting you to me, um, asking me, was I as pessimistic as you about the possibility of this turning into the great financial crisis again. I'd be less pessimistic than that, but um, I two, two words to me describe everything at the moment, and that is intense uncertainty. Uh, there is just so much stuff building at the moment. Wherever you look, you can see the potential for crisis. So this will have to be managed very, very carefully by policymakers to see the world through the next 12 months. The International Monetary Fund yesterday, as I mentioned in my introduction, came out with its latest global economic forecast. It said that one third of the world economy faces two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which is technical recession. It warned about the future 
challenges the risks over the coming months, um, further dollar appreciating, causing particular problems for emerging markets in terms of debt, in terms of interest rates, um, monetary policy. It's kind of difficult to see what they mean by the monetary policy threat, uh, because on the one hand, they are arguing that... um, you know, central bankers need to tighten interest rate policy at the moment to try and get inflation back under control. They are also fearful that they, they might do too much or perhaps not a little. So basically, monetary policy is identified as another risk. Um, further energy and food price shocks. And, and given that those shocks are pretty much outside of the control of mainstream economic analysis are in the realms of global geopolitics and specifically uh, the unhinged Vladimir Putin. Um, who knows what's going to happen there? Um, but the bottom line is that um, the risks to global growth, according to the IMF, are all on the downside at the moment. China, which is the world's second largest economy, projected to grow by 4.3% this year, 2.6% next year. And um, in China, COVID-19 and the restrictions that have been in place have taken a significant toll on economic activity, but also the collapse we're seeing in the construction sector. And I say when we're seeing, we're not really, we don't know what we're seeing in a sense that there's such a lack of transparency, but the Evergrande collapse last year and um, the subsequent stories about that only being the tip of the iceberg and that there is a major Um, crash happening in the construction sector at the moment. Uh, These are all serious concerns about the world's second largest economy. Um, US growth projected to be flat this year and to expand by just 1% next year. I mean, that is a remarkably weak performance for the US economy. So if the IMF projections come to pass, we're looking at a challenging 12-month period. And indeed, the bank, uh, the IMF did warn that the next six months particularly could see things getting a lot worse. So I think it is squeaky bum time in terms of global economics and global financial markets for the foreseeable future. Um, I hope we can see our way through this that um, doesn't evolve into a major problems for the financial system. And I think if you were to look at one positive thing today relative to 2007-8, it is that the financial system would appear to be in a better state of health um, than back in 2007-2008 because we we don't have the whole um, subprime mortgage crisis, for example, in the United States. But I worry that because of a a 10-year protracted period of very low interest rates and quantitative easing, excessive liquidity, that other bubbles that we're not quite aware of may have built up in the global financial system. Uh, But as I say, it is squeaky bum time and uh, the coming months will be really, really, I think, nervous and testing for all of us. Yeah, I think that one of the things that you said there essentially is that that we're worried about the problems occurring outside the banking sector this time because we just don't know where these problems are at the moment, but we think they're there. Uh, The thing that worries me is that the, the big problem that's building is it's it started in a way with the Federal Reserve in particular, but other central banks as well, underreacting to the original inflation problem. We got it wrong. We, those of us that were on t- team transitory got it wrong. And so that therefore we're now in this problem of inflation because we didn't nip it in the bud. I would argue you couldn't nip it in the bud anyway because it was all energy. 
Anyway, now they're going to make the same mistake, but on the other side, the pendulum is going to swing too far and they're overdoing it, both in terms of the rhetoric and the actual interest rate rises that they've done, and in particular, that they are still going to do. And they're going to kill the real economy. And whatever problems are out there lurking, whether they're in the banking or the non-banking sector or somewhere else in the real economy, if the central banks led by the United States are going to overdo it, let the pendulum go too far the other way, then that's really the source of my lack of optimism. I won't call it pessimism because by nature I'm an optimist, but I have less optimism today than I normally do, Jim, I can assure you. Mm. Okay, Chris, uh, we might wrap it there. There's not a lot to report um, in Ireland. Um, Very little news of any consequence at the moment. Um, But given what's happening globally, the implications of the Irish economy um, are likely to become more apparent over the coming months. Cheers, Jim. So, So nervous times. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.